Ken Forrester, Executive Director at Momenta. Welcome to our Digital Thread Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momenta, they are deep industry operators. We hope you find these podcasts informative, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to episode 169 of our Momenta Digital Thread podcast series and the first of our 2022 series. Today, I'm pleased to host Tim Booker, CEO of Agtonomy, a company building a sustainable future for local farms. Momenta is a proud investor in Agtonomy. Tim is a high-tech serial entrepreneur who has created several successful companies over the last three decades, taking one of them public and selling six others to tech giants like Microsoft, Apple, Dell, and Seagate. He has served in executive roles directly for Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and Michael Dell, learning how to span from high-level vision to hands-on implementation, always focused on innovation and creating new markets and growth opportunities from existing ones. Tim is also a gentleman farmer, having built successful olive oil, vineyard, and wine businesses over several decades. Tim, welcome to our Digital Thread podcast. Thanks, Ken. It's great to be here. And also, thank you so much for investing in Agtonomy. It's wonderful to have you guys along for our journey, and thanks for believing in us. Oh, well, yes. Believe me, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, but you guys are really dead center where we think the industry is going in terms of Agtonomy and agronomy, if you will, all together. So, We always like to start with one's digital thread. So what would you consider to be your digital thread? In other words, the one or more thematic threads that defined your digital industry journey. Well, I think there are several themes that came up during my digital journey, but there's one in particular that when I look back on the first half of my career and then the second half of my career, it was always present. And I call it, you know, just digital vision. Because when I first got into high tech, I got hooked into digital media, which was all about capturing things digitally. And then I spent years and years in encoding technology for video and whatnot. And so the first half of my year was kind of digitizing the world from a visual standpoint. And then I did a company many years ago called Live Minds, where we were indexing consumers' videos and photos, which we take millions of these days. And this was well before the era of Google Photos and lots of other technologies that exist today. And we started to do object recognition in photos. But more importantly, we started to do, using AI in its nascent state, automatic editing of videos. And it was then that I realized, wow, it's not just about sort of digital vision capturing. It's about what you can do with that. And that's what I've spent the second half of my career doing is really focused on understanding what it is you're capturing digitally. So thematically in my journey, as I look back on the decades, (laughs) I'm a well-traveled entrepreneur, if you will. Um, (laughs) I think digital vision is the theme that really summarizes not only my passion, but kind of where I've seen the digital world going and continue to go in the future. Mm. So in essence, a a digital vision of vision systems digitally, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> really exactly. both angles of it. Yeah, very much yeah. so. Yeah. Look, you have an impressive background. I always like to do a little research. And I mean, you've been at the forefront of Silicon Valley Innovators since 1986. So let's say Sun, Next, 3DO, Web TV, Microsoft, Apple, Seagate, among many others. 
if you had to synthesize your tenure at these companies into three key learnings, what would they be? Wow. Well, I think if you look back on my history, it's filled with startups and then typically acquisitions into larger companies. So it's both small companies and big companies. And I think the things that I learned apply to both. And the top three things are really, first and foremost, focused on leadership versus management. So I learned to focus on leadership, not management. You know, management's about doing things right and dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And that's great. But when I started to kind of let those things go and focus more on doing the right thing, and sometimes the right thing is not always politically correct, or sometimes it's not conducive to efficiency or whatnot, or it's very, very much taking risks, but it tends to yield better results. And I always tell people, you know, especially new people that I work with, I always tell them, hey, look, I want to tell you something. I'm not a great manager, but I will lead you. And I think always providing that guiding light for a team whether you're leading the team officially or you're an individual contributor, I think it's super, super important and it always pays off. The second thing is really about creating value for a company. And I think it's the startup experience that I've had where it's really brought that into focus more than anything. And what I mean by that is there's so many things you can do, right? If you're in technology, you can do just about anything. But you have to think about it in the context of what would create the most value for the company. And what that does is it helps you prioritize things, you know, very, very crisply, which I think also is critical for success in a small company and in a big company. And, you know, I've seen this in my startup days. I've seen this, you know, when I was working for Michael Dell. Just think about what would be in the best interest of the company and what can create the most valuable value there. And the last thing that I've learned is there's a lot of evangelism and whatnot that goes on in technology, but I like to say, show me versus tell me. And that drives me and has driven me in big companies and small to really focus on proof of concepts, whether it's a new software algorithm, some kind of hardware device, always work on prototyping and show me versus tell me. So I think I only do PowerPoint for investors these days because I believe in demonstrations and real world kinds of things. But that's something that has served me well and I think has served others well that I've worked with in my journey in small and big companies alike. Three great lessons, leadership versus management, creating value at each step and then really demonstrating that value. It's interesting on your point number two, an early mentor of mine talked about the best way to create value is to look at your company externally. Pretend you're a private equity firm looking at your company in some sense, right? Exactly. What would you do, right? <laughs> Maybe leaving out the financial re-engineering that PE was famous for back in the day. But still, I think the perspective is an interesting one to look at, especially in larger companies that you're looking at. You've been really blessed to have worked for some great legends of technologies, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Michael Dell. I could imagine the three of them in one, uh, in one room. What would you say were some of the most actionable leadership lessons you learned from each along the way? Well, they were all great and they were all very different. But there was one thing that they all did that I really took note of. They all had a mantra, whether they said it specifically or whether they acted it. What I gleaned from each of them is that they had one thing that was really critical and they really pushed their organizations accordingly. And so with Bill Gates, it was funny, you know, I, I would have meetings with him in his office regularly every couple of weeks. And I would see him in meetings, of course, quite a bit. And he would always uh, almost yell that, you know, the world runs on software. 
And so for him, it's all about software. Like the whole world was about software. And it was a very maniacal focus. And at first I was like, well, wait a minute, there's other things in the world. But in hindsight, I actually really believe he was right. And so he really drove that into his organization. And it was kind of sort of a great guiding light for the company. And his leadership style really showed that in not only his direct actions or his direct statements, but also his actions. And for Steve Jobs, you know, his mantra was different, but it was also quite maniacal and it was all about design. And, you know, he was right. I mean, there were things that we did at Apple and even at Next that made no business sense from a cost standpoint, but it made the products look better and feel better. And at first I was like, well, this is kind of a little bit not in line with what normal companies do. But, you know, again, he was right, too. So for him, his mantra is all about design. And Michael Dell was really interesting. The thing that I saw him do all the time, including in big executive meetings, board meetings, you name it, he could recite costs of anything, like a small little resistor value. He would know the industry costs of that. And so for Michael, it was all about costs. And you know what? He, too, was right. So when I look back at these three leaders, I tried to absorb sort of the best, you know, sort of the greatest hits album between them and other leaders, great leaders that I worked for. And it's really interesting. Again, the one thread that they all shared was, hey, I have this mantra. I'm going to lead it, you know, by example. I'm going to speak it. I'm going to show it in my actions. And I think it worked really well for not only them, but their companies as well. That's a really interesting insight. And I could see that working where that maniacal focus, to use your term, is something that is long-term resilient and sustainable, right? So certainly software, good call. Design, I don't know when design ever runs out of steam, right? <laughs> and certainly operational efficiencies, at least, you know, not taken to an extreme, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, the intersection of all three is really very interesting in terms of your experience base. Yeah, and it's hard to say exactly what the one thing is that does the intersection. So, you know, when people ask me, well, Tim, what's your mantra? I usually go back to the thing I said earlier, which is about, you know, show me, right? It's, yeah. it's all about show me. But I think your comment about sort of the, you know, the longevity of these mantras, it's clear, right? Bill Gates hasn't been the CEO or the president for a long time at Microsoft. And clearly, you know, cloud and software, it's their core. And same thing at Apple. I think that design has continued on in everything they do. And with Dell as, you know, as well, Michael's still there. So um, <laughs> I think he's helping to foster that one, continue to foster that one. Yeah, it's interesting. It creates a culture that transcends the individual or the leader at the time you know, who created yep. that culture. And certainly Apple's great experience, test case with that as well. So let's fast forward to autonomy. And I was actually holding back the mantra question because I was going to ask you on top of the autonomy one, but I'm glad you hit it. So you founded <laughs> or you co-founded the company in 2020. So actually fairly recently. Tell us a little bit about your origin story. Well, the origin story goes way back. Um, much farther back than 2020, but in terms of actually forming the company, indeed, we did it in 2020. You know, as you mentioned in the introduction, which was a, a very kind introduction, thank you, Ken, my life has been sort of a parallel career in high tech and in agriculture. I was born and raised a farmer. I did my undergrad at a university called UC Davis, which was a very well-known ag school accidentally took a computer course and kind of got into high tech, but I also had my own farming operation. I was the younger male in a traditional immigrant family, so I knew I wasn't going to get to farm. But when I was probably about 16, I started my own little farming operation. 
on two acres, you know, very, very small and continued that and grew that and kept getting bigger and bigger through the years while I was in Silicon Valley the whole time. So I kind of had these two parallel paths and never did I let the streams cross until agtonomy. And so what's happened in agriculture is tremendous challenges. It's kind of like a perfect storm, actually. And it wasn't that I was reading about it or hearing about it from others. I was experiencing it firsthand in my own farming operations. My farm is called Trattori Farms. Trattori means tractor in Italian, by the way. I kind of collect tractors. I'm kind of a tractor buff. And so as I was continuing growing my farming operation, one of the things that became more and more challenging was labor. I mean, I literally would leave Cupertino when I was at Apple, you know, sometimes at night and, you know, jump on a tractor to do some kind of mowing or something in the field and return to Silicon Valley at about 4 a.m. with nobody knowing. And so this continued for years and it was becoming harder and harder to actually find employees who wanted to work in farming. I mean, think about it. There aren't a lot of people who go to college for agriculture and become a farmer. You know, it's challenging to buy land. It's challenging to do all these things. So it's usually kind of family farmers, you know, that pass down from one another. And over time, the factory farms have continued to reduce the number of family farms through the years globally. So what happened was, I don't know, probably about five years ago or so, labor costs were just, you know, killing Trattori farms. And I bought this very unusual tractor that had nothing to do with agriculture and kind of reapplied it to an application which literally was just mowing on hillsides because every year I would spend about $50,000 in labor to reduce the grass and other kind of shrubbery for not only wildfire prevention or management, I should say, but also just to make the place look good too because it's a public place that has a tasting room and whatnot. And I saw the impact that a machine could have to that. And I said, my God, you know, there's so many opportunities here for creating solutions that can help minimize, not minimize, that can help close the gap in labor shortage. So a lot of people say, oh, well, Tim, you're working on things that eliminate jobs. It's not actually true. It's really more about closing the labor gap, the labor shortage. So really the beginnings of economy were very personal. And I started to play around with gutting tractors and electrifying them. And finally, I called some friends and I said, hey, you know, I know this is really strange. I know that, you know, we've been doing companies in high tech for a long time, but take a look at this. And it was really my co-founders that gave me the inspiration for us collectively to go all in on this and start a company and really focus on our mission, which we'll sure talk about more later. But the history was very personal and it was real in terms of something that I was experiencing with one of my own businesses. You know, we did some work last year on a big transaction, a CNHI acquired Raven on our advisory side of the team. And it really gave us a lot of insights. I personally came from Syngenta and worked on their intelligent agriculture initiative before. So I saw some of the early, if you will, movement into digitization of farms and also, you know, some of the early concerns around things like data integrity, data sovereignty, data sharing, et cetera. And this is back when, you know, Monsanto was a big force, you know, in the industry. Yeah. Uh, so you can understand why farmers didn't want to share data, right? Yeah. But there's been subsequent acquisitions now, uh, John Deere acquiring Bear Flag Robotics, et cetera. How does autonomy differ from these other companies and transactions that have happened recently? Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that all these other companies that are working or any company that's working in ag tech right now, I'm just thrilled about 
because we need all of them to be successful. But there is, you know, well, actually there are a couple of differences about autonomy and our approach. First of all, when you look at like Raven, you mentioned, or Bear Flag Robotics or Blue River and other companies in the ag tech space that have been acquired or have had some pretty incredible success. They focus on what I call big ag. In other parts of the world, sometimes it's called broad ag or, you know, factory farming or whatever, but basically plains farming, flatland farming, typically uh, commodity crops like row crops. And so one of the things that I really wanted to focus on is on local ag. Because when you think about it, still, even though there's been a lot of reduction in the small to medium-sized farmers every year, it's still the dominant number of farmers out there. About 80% of our food comes from small to medium-sized farms. And yet, they don't have access to the same kind of technology that these large big ag farms have, right? They can afford, you know, like CES, there was an announcement from John Deere about their autonomous tractor. And it's a rather... It's an amazing vehicle, don't get me wrong, and they're going to be successful, it's all great. But it's really focused on tilling the flatlands, the plains for corn in certain parts of the country or of the world. And the bottom line is, not all farming is 10,000 acres at a time. It's, you know, 100 acres, it's, you know, a couple hundred acres. And so we like to really think about local agriculture, which is also a consumer trend. You know, earlier I talked about a perfect storm. You have a lot of technology moving to big ag in ag tech, but yet consumers really want local products, local farm, you know, the farm to table kind of good food movement that's been at play for decades now. And so that's one of the really big differences between Agtonomy and a lot of the other companies that you mentioned. And one of the things about that is we talk to some large farmers too, and every time they say, well, can your technology replace this 200 horsepower tractor that I have? And I say, wait a minute, like, what is the task you're trying to do? And when we look at it that way, we realize that the kind of equipment that's more affordable by local ag farmers can actually work for big ag too, and can actually be more sustainable and environmentally friendly, et cetera, et cetera. So we tend to focus on lower priced kinds of vehicles that are more attainable by the smaller operations. Call it, you know, the 50K range versus the 500K range in terms of dollars for a tractor. The other difference is that we don't believe in going it alone. Having personally grown up in ag and, you know, have been farming for decades, the ag environment is not friendly. Machines get beat up. And so if you think about a bunch of high-tech folks saying, oh, I can go and do a tractor, you better be careful with that because there are companies that have been building farming equipment for literally 150 years, and they know how to make this equipment last in these harsh environments. So when we started doing Actonomy, the one thing the founding group said was, hey, wait, look, we could go it alone and raise you know, lots of money. We call it the Tesla approach. Or we could partner with these incredible OEMs that have, they're global, they, they've been you know, at this for a long time, and help them essentially bring more intelligence to their own equipment to ultimately make it autonomous and again, close that labor gap. So that's the second big difference. And then I think the third difference, you know, I talked about the type of crop, you know, row crops or commodity crops is where most of the technology today has been focused, but yet there's a good percentage of our food chain that comes from specialty crops or permanent crops. You know, people use different terminology, but basically crops that you plant and they might take a while to mature. So they're more expensive to the initial investment is more expensive. 
And then they tend to require more attention. You need to coddle them year round. And those specialty crops consist of things like fruit trees and nut trees and vineyards and other things. And so that is the other area that we're focused on versus a lot of these other companies that you mentioned. So I hope that makes sense. There's kind of three big differences we feel in autonomy versus other approaches. No, it does very much so. And to put a point on this, let me jump forward and ask you really around about some of your early use cases and wins so people really understand the value proposition. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when you have a specialty crop, even row crops, any crop, you have to do multiple passes. What's a pass? A pass is going through the entire crop and doing some tillage, doing some mowing, doing some spraying, whatever the application is, right? There's herbicides and pesticides and all kinds of other things that, you know, people apply in their crops. But that multiple pass takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of labor and it costs a lot. You know, it's, it's funny, a lot of farmers sit there and farming is like gambling, right? I'm sure you've heard that before. You mother nature, you know, weather, everything comes into play. And if you can time it just right where you only have to do, you know, if you can eliminate one pass, your farm can be profitable that year. But inevitably, you have some mildew or something else in your crop that you have to go go forward on. So one of the areas that we've had great success in is, is in vineyards. Now, vineyards are something that we happen to have in our backyard in Northern California. We have some great test sites, including my own farming operation. So in a sense, it's been almost like destiny in a way. But what happened was that as we talked to other farmers, including big farmers, we were shocked at how much they wanted these solutions. One of the things that is really key in agriculture is sustainability. So it's not just helping with the labor shortage, but also being a lot more sustainable and looking at alternate types of propulsion, um, electric being one of the biggest ones. So it's been a great ride so far, and we're just at the beginning. And we think there's going to be a lot more applications in other kinds of crops moving forward. You know, it's uh, interesting. You used the term perfect storm a couple of times. And as a researching this, PitchBook just recently predicted that ag tech and AI will lead emerging technology funding in 2022. And so I think many were surprised by the list actually leading with agriculture over AI, interestingly enough. So given you operate at the intersection of both, it seems you're well-placed and perhaps our investment in you is equally well-timed. Does the choice of either of these sectors by PitchBook surprise you in terms of investment activity and predictions? Oh, Ken, all I can say is it's about time. And I'm so excited about not only what PitchBook has been predicting, but what I'm seeing over the last just five years in terms of investors. You know, five years ago, Ken, I think, I didn't know any VC who would invest in ag tech. And so you're seeing this great migration, if you will, to this segment. And I think one of the reasons why is that let's take autonomous technology, autonomy in general. I don't know how many trillions have been applied to autonomous passenger transportation. But if you think about it, that's really a convenience solution. In agriculture, we're in a desperate situation. And autonomous operation is not for convenience anymore. It's for necessity. And I think people are starting to realize that. So there's huge opportunities there. And I think you're going to see even more of it moving forward because ultimately we have to do a lot more with less and everyone needs to eat. So, and hopefully need to eat good food, which is again, why we are focused on that, the local ag versus big ag. But yeah, I'm excited. And like I said, it's about time. 
<laughs> I'd fully agree. Again, going back to my work in Syngenta, which was actually prior to founding Momentus, about 10 years now, you can imagine how nascent the world was looking digitally back then. But you're right there. The only investors really in the space were those that were maybe more traditional biotech and or strategics, right? The yeah. Monsanto, Syngenta, et cetera. And of course, Climate Corp came out around the time. So it was, call it Silicon Valley's first foray or large foray, if you will, into digitization of agriculture. And, yeah. uh, and we know that was eventually acquired by, uh, by Monsanto. Let's perhaps look forward a little bit. So what do you see as the greatest opportunities really for your ag tech space in the next five years? Well, the five-year horizon is interesting because I think beyond five years, I do believe the greatest opportunity will be in data. You know, we always believe in data and, and you and I sit there and we see the application of data and how it can do all kinds of amazing things. But the fact is that at least local farmers don't pay for data. And so, but they do pay for things that help make their operation more efficient. And so over the next five years, I really believe the opportunities in ag tech are about specialty robotics. So machines that can help close that gap. And right now you're seeing machines that do sort of generic things like cultivation or mowing and things like that, that are, I would call it more easily automatable, more easily made autonomous. But as we go forward, I believe robotics for harvesting of crop A, B, and C. There's been a lot of great activity and great success in strawberry pickers, autonomous strawberry pickers. And I think you're going to see more and more of that for different crops. So, you know, I dream one day where my olives can be picked in an automated autonomous way. Uh, I always tell people grapes are hard to grow, but easy to harvest. Olives are easy to grow, but very difficult to harvest. So, I hope within the next five years, I'll see a completely autonomous olive harvester. But uh, again, specialty robotics. I sense the next version of your tractor coming out already. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so it's funny. We often refer to somebody with your tracker as a serial entrepreneur. I think that's akin to calling a machine gun simply a repeater, if you will, because <laughs> you've been quite proliferate in your innovation. To what do you owe your ability to constantly be at the really hotbed of innovation or on the forefront of it? Well, I've always asked myself that question. And honestly, Ken, I don't think I've ever come up with a great answer. So I do know one thing. I'm curious. And I think you have to be curious to want to look for or, you know, you automatically sort of piece together trends. But if I really think about my background and what might have triggered me to be a, you, you call it serial entrepreneur, I, I sometimes refer to myself as a diseased entrepreneur. Um, <laughs> I, I, I keep at it. But when you grow up a farmer, as I did in a family farm, I mean, you have to come up with incredibly creative solutions immediately, right? Whether it's, you know, you have a, a big water leak somewhere or whatever, it's like, well, how do you fix that? And you're just always coming up with solutions to things that you never actually thought you would encounter. And I think that growing up, oh, and by the way, as a farmer, you also have to survive. And that's sort of, you know, that's another thing that helps foster innovation and looking for solutions and always trying to find things that can help you. So I would say those two things, you know, a baseline of, of being curious and then that upbringing in a farm is probably what is making me a diseased entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it reminds me, Ed, in an early career, I was working on flexible manufacturing systems, and I had an opportunity to spend several months at the Bobcat tractor in, in North Dakota. 
And this is really a company town. And what was interesting is seeing really the best in class manufacturing capabilities they had. And this was probably circa late 80s, early 90s. So I'm dating myself, but they were able to benchmark themselves and show both better quality and better costing than the traditional offshore Asia pack, if you will, manufacturing back then. And they attributed to the fact that most of the people working at the plant were farmers that were working off shift from farming. Yep. And so it was interesting. They brought a lot of that common sense capability where you'd install a flexible manufacturing system at a large aerospace company. And it was in some sense almost over-engineered in terms of how it was put in where Bobcat would basically get it running the first day and then pragmatically operate this thing, right? To yeah. really get the best use out of it. So. It was an interesting early insight for me about the value of farmers and really that common sense, if you will, that they apply toward everything they do. I think that's a great comment. And it's funny, Ken, you mentioned that because, you know, in my high tech life, I have visited, you know, factories all over the world, building everything from iPhones to computers and you name it. And, you know, you look at automation and high tech manufacturing. But on my other parallel path, you know, truth be told, I've actually toured the world and visited many tractor manufacturing facilities. And I couldn't agree with you more. The level of high tech and efficiency and creative solutions to problems like the Waterloo factory for John Deere, where they build their biggest tractors, I had the pleasure of going through. And the way they paint the vehicles is like nothing I've ever seen before. So I think you're right. They're all from that farming background and are very passionate about it. But you have to be creative if you're a farmer, that's for sure. <laughs> Pragmatic, I guess, is probably the right yeah, term for uh, that. Yeah, you're so. right. Yeah. So in, in closing, where do you find your personal inspiration? That's a layup question for me. I think anybody, <laughs> anybody who really knows me knows where I do all of my thinking. I mean, first of all, I do want to be clear that, you know, I do read a lot. I love reading history. I love reading fiction. I love reading about technology. But ultimately, I get my inspiration drum roll from driving tractors. So I have every single startup I've done. I guarantee you this. Every single startup I've done, the ideas have come to me while driving a tractor. There's something about being on a piece of equipment, having to be focused because you're doing some precision work. And if you go off track, you know, some bad things can happen, right? And yes, I've had a few accidents and damaged a few olive trees and (laughs) grapevines here and there. But it just, it puts me in a trance and I think about problems. I think about new things. I think about the the mind goes to some amazing places. So for me, it's all about driving the tractor. And I will tell you this, at Agtonomy, you know, we have lots of prototypes now. And if you ask any of my colleagues, well, who's your number one tester? I can almost guarantee you they would all say Tim, because we have a new version of the whether it's the autonomous stack or the remote control stack or another version of the EV that we focus on on EV exclusively, I'm always the first to say, okay, I'll do the field testing of that one. And it's because I also get incredible inspiration from doing that. <laughs> I recall Mike Dolbeck, who of course leads our uh, ventures team, going over to visit you guys the first time, which I understand your office is not too far from where he's at in uh, Menlo Park. And he talked about, you know, talk about prove it to me, going out there and actually being able to drive some of the tractors. And he said that was absolute blast. Again, going back to my Bobcat days, they used to let us drive the new tractors on their tests. They have an actually outside test strip. They put all new tractors through. So, of course, it was an absolute blast to do it, right? <laughs> so I can appreciate your influence. I, quite, I haven't quite the time and seat that you do, but I did enjoy it and Mike did as well. So... 
Well, Tim, thank you for sharing this time and these insights with us today. Oh, it's been my pleasure, Ken. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. This has been a lot of fun and we're very proud to be investors in you guys. So this has been Tim Booker, CEO of Ectonomy, a company building a sustainable future for local farms. Thank you for listening and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Thread podcast series. Thank you and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Thread podcast series. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.